As we dive in this morning, though, we are in the Christmas season. Uh, You guys hopefully heard some familiar Christmas carols this morning, and there's familiar Christmas decorations. And in some respects, that's kind of what Christmas feels like it could be all about, doesn't it? You know, the the familiar, the the decorations. There's a a light-up Santa that I have. It's a plastic light-up Santa that's about this tall that has been mine since I was about five or six years old. My grandparents uh, had one, and they I loved it. And so my grandfather bought me this this big uh, plastic Santa. I got an elf to go with it. And um, I am, if money was no object and time was limitless, I would be Clark Griswold. You would be able to see my house from space. Um, in fact, if now that the car wash is in the way, you can't really see it, but you could usually see our house from Dairy Queen um, because of the lights on it. Uh, it's incredible. It's my favorite thing to do. I, just, I love setting up Christmas lights. I love Christmas, and it becomes very nostalgic for us, especially during this season, right? By the way, happy birthday, Jasper Moore. <laughs> Got to embarrass people when we can As we're getting into the Christmas season, though, you know, with everything that's been happening over the last few years, as hectic as life has been, maybe the nostalgia or the pull there is even stronger for you this year. You know, this is the time you'll get together with family. You'll set out that same Christmas village that you put out every year. Or, you know, we do have some young married couples, and so you're starting all of those new routines and starting those traditions that will be things that 50 years from now you'll go, why do we do that? But that's okay. there's just this traditional part that comes with Christmas. So can I challenge you this morning and, and over, actually over the next four weeks to push back against the nostalgia for just a little bit, to push back against the familiarity that Christmas is and, and to really remember that everything about what we're celebrating this month is really, really unusual. Unusual is actually the mildest term for it. This is incredible. This is unique, and, and the Christmas events, the things that we're celebrating with this, has never before happened in human history. It's never going to happen again, and everything about this is unique. What we're going to be finding is, as we look at Christmas, we're celebrating the arrival of an unusual king. One unlike any that the world had ever seen. Now, you guys know me. I I love to take one passage of Scripture and just dig in real deep to it. We're actually going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to look at three different passages of Scripture as we're examining this morning the unusual promise that God made to send this unusual king. Now, again... Most of you guys, you know, the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special is, what, 65 years old or something like that? So you've heard Linus stand on stage and recite the Christmas story. You've got your Christmas routines. But what I want to challenge you with over these next four weeks is don't let this just be a routine celebration for you. Instead, spend some time focusing on who this king is and how unusual it is, Okay. So with that in mind, we're going to back up first by looking at the unusual promise that God made. Now, there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the promise that God was making to send this king. We're going to highlight three of them that kind of highlight for us just how uniquely unusual this king would be, and everything about it from day one is a little bit weird. By the way, you'll notice as we've got this on the screen, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 7, and Micah chapter 5. Micah is going to be the hardest one to find. Um, If you're not familiar with your 
Bible. It's one of the, the little tiny books there. It's between Jonah and uh, Nahum. I think, right? Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Yeah. All right. Between Jonah and Nahum, um, if you don't know where any of that is, your Bible should have a table of contents in the front of it. Or if, you have, or if you're using an app, just pull down the little drawer from the top, and you should be able to find M-I-C in there somewhere. Okay? So as you're looking through this, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this from these three different perspectives, and here's what I hope. My hope is something that's interestingly already woven itself through what Doug was sharing and what God's been working already is my hope is that as you see these three different unusual aspects of this unusual promise that God made to send an unusual king, that it's going to create in us an unusual peace, an unusual peace. These three promises that God made and then later fulfilled in the birth of Christ should give us an unusual peace that no matter what's going on, no matter what we're facing, no matter what the confusion, the challenge, or the chaos, God's in charge. We're going to look at that from these three different aspects. The first thing that I want you to see then is going ahead and and flipping over to Genesis chapter 3 this morning, the very beginning of our Bible, to see an unusual picture that God made when he made this promise to send his king. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we're picking up in the most pivotal moment in human history to this point. God had created Adam and Eve, and he had put them in an incredible, uh, beautiful garden. He had set them, and from day one that God created people, which was on day six of creation, that on that time, he said, you have dominion over everything on earth. You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That doesn't mean that we have the ability to exploit the resources that God's given us. Instead, he put us as the stewards who have the responsibility to care for the creation that he's made. We have the responsibility to to build in a God-honoring way, to live in a God-honoring way, to develop culture in a God-honoring way. So God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the middle of this beautiful garden. If you remember, he told them that Adam's first job was to take care of the garden, which, by the way, that also tells us that work predates the fall. So work's not bad. Hard work is a part of the fall. We'll get into why that happened here in a second. What was it, though, that here we find in Genesis chapter 2, what was it that God said that they weren't supposed to do? Do you remember? There was one tree that they weren't supposed to eat the fruit from. What was that tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? If you're not familiar with the story, that's okay. We're, we're glad you're here with us. We hope that, that as you're watching online or if you're here in person with us, we hope that this is good information for you as you go forward. He said there, there's all these trees you can eat from, all of this land you can take care of, but there's one thing that you're not supposed to eat from. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would God do that? I was reading a book this, uh, this semester for my doctoral work that, that as I was reading, they explained one possible reason for why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there. I mentioned that when God created Adam, he said, you have authority over everything in creation except for this tree. See, all of the authority that you and I have all of the, the, the abilities that we have, all of the insight that we have, all of the leadership abilities, the life, the breath, everything we have is a gift from God. So although we have the privilege of being able to, to shepherd and oversee part of creation, God said there's this one part that's a visible reminder to you that you're not ultimately in charge. I am. So God said, I, I'm putting this tree of the knowledge of good and evil here. Don't eat it. Well, many of you are familiar with the story here in Genesis chapter 3. 
You'll remember that Eve is there near the tree. The serpent comes and says, hey, did God say that you're not supposed to eat that? Eve responds and says, well, God said we're not even supposed to touch it. Well, interestingly, God never said that for the record. We don't know if Adam added that later to say, hey, you know, uh, we're not supposed to eat it. So if you don't even touch it, then you won't eat it. We'll, We'll be okay. The serpent said there in Genesis chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles open to it, here it says this in verse 3. It says, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it. You will die. Verse 4, no, you'll not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent deceived Eve. He told her a half-truth. It's true, her eyes would be opened. And she would come to know things that that she didn't know before. But that knowledge would be the knowledge of evil, to know what sin is. Eve was deceived, and she took the fruit, she ate it. Apparently, Adam was standing right there, and he didn't do anything to stop it because she took from that same fruit, and she gave it to Adam, and he ate. In that one moment, everything about history changed. All of a sudden, there was shame. There was fear. Sin had come into the world, and where they had enjoyed walking with God and talking with God and knowing Him, where where they had been with Him and all of these things, all of a sudden, they're isolated from God. They're hiding from Him, as we see in the chapter. Not only that, they're isolated from each other. They start pointing fingers and blaming each other for what took place. And even as we find, as we've continued on, we're even isolated from our own selves. We don't know why we do what we do. You ever get mad and you don't know why? You ever get tired or sad and you don't understand why you're crying about something or why you're so frustrated or why it hits you? This is all a result of that moment where we chose to take on what was never supposed to be ours to carry. That knowledge of good and evil that should have belonged to God alone. And in that moment, everything broke. Do you know why there were tornadoes in Kentucky? Do you know why there's fires in, in Australia and in California? Do you know why all of these things take place? Because ever since that moment, death and destruction have been a part of life on earth. It goes right back to here. This is the linchpin that explains all of this. And I'm not saying that that the tornadoes were because somebody was especially bad in Kentucky and so God decided to send a tornado to wipe them out. That's not at all what I'm saying or implying. What I'm saying is the world we live in has been ravaged and wrecked by the curse of sin that affects everything in creation. It's why weather goes nuts. It's why people act the way they do. And in that moment, they made this one decision that destroyed everything. What's this got to do with Christmas? From the very moment that we wrecked everything, God made a promise to send this unusual king. It's an unusual picture, so read with me here. God starts going through and, and talking to the serpent and talking to the woman and talking to the man about the effects of their sin, the, the effects of, of the curse and the effects of what's going to take place. There in verse 15, he's talking to to the serpent. And he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. 
Now, leave that verse up for a little bit, Alex. As we look at this, this is a very weird picture, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Some of you guys, you've heard this before. You're familiar with it, so you know where this is headed. But God's talking to a snake, and he tells the snake, there's going to be hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Some say this is why we get so creeped out by snakes. I mean, just in general, that that most people do not enjoy when they encounter a snake unexpectedly. Some people do, but most people don't. I believe as we look through the rest of Scripture, though, that there's more going on than what we see. There, as you look at in passages like later on in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 specifically, it says that the snake here, Revelation 22 says the serpent, which is from old, is Satan. This is not likely just any old snake. This is most likely Satan working in and through a snake or taking the form of a snake. We don't know for sure. In case you're not familiar with him, Satan is the enemy of God. He was created to be an angel who was to serve God. He was one of the most powerful, one of the most beautiful that God had ever created, but that wasn't enough for him. So he decided instead of being an angel, he wanted to be God. He rebelled against God, was kicked out of heaven, and now he's the one who's trying to do everything he can to stop and disrupt the plan of God. So what does he do? He goes to the highest point of God's creation, mankind, and tries to ruin and wreck the image of God in them by getting them to disobey. In that moment, that serpent, as he deceived Eve, as Adam took the fruit willingly, as we chose to reject God and do what we wanted to do, the serpent was there in the middle of the whole thing. He says that there will be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. What's that referring to? Well, if it's not just we're talking about the natural aversion to snakes, which it could be part of it, There's also the the fact that ever since there's been a a battle between demonic forces and the people that God created. Guys, we we don't like talking about it often. We we neglect the fact that, that it's a real thing, but the reality is there is a spiritual realm out there full of angels and demons. And the demons are trying to do everything they can to disrupt and destroy the work of God on the earth. Not only that, one of the passages we didn't really get into in John chapter 8, Jesus said that anybody who's still in the kingdom of darkness, anybody who's not following God, who's not a servant of Christ, he refers to Satan as their father. They said, you're like your father, the devil. So there's enmity between those who follow Christ and those who do not. But then it it shifts from being general to, to singular. He will strike your head. You will strike his heel. How many of you have ever injured your heel? Hurts, doesn't it? I mean, it hurts real bad. And heels are, are slow to heal because uh, there's just not a lot of circulation down there. So it, it's a serious injury. But most people don't die from a heel injury, right? However, striking somebody on the head, it's very easy to, to deal a mortal blow to somebody when you hit them in the head. So what's he saying here? God's promising from the very moment that we wrecked the world with our selfish choice, God's promising that one day he's going to send a son of Eve who would crush the head of the snake. Now, 
It's not going to come without cost. It's interesting here. This is, like I said, it's a weird picture to think about this snake striking at the heel, injuring this person, and then him stomping on the head and crushing. What do we see this a picture of? This is the picture of Jesus when he comes. As Jesus ministered and lived and walked, and then ultimately Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He dies a real death. In that moment, Satan struck at the heel of the offspring, the son of Eve, the promised unusual king from all the way back in the garden as the serpent struck and dealt him this blow that seemed to be fatal. We know that it wasn't. And Jesus rose from the dead. As Jesus rose from the dead, he crushed the head of the serpent. He broke the power of sin. He broke the power of death. And now our unusual king rules and reigns over all of humanity. And it all comes back to this picture. This picture that, guys, listen, this is day one of our mistake. Day one when we broke it. What's God saying? As soon as he draws us to himself, he calls Adam and Eve out of hiding. He calls them back to himself. And he says, there's coming a day when somebody's going to fix what you broke. Now, he uses an unusual picture to do it. But that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. This baby that's born, the the nativity scenes, all of this thing about the angels and the star and the shepherd and all of that is God fulfilling this picture that he gave all the way on day one when we mess things up. Making it right. Now, the Bible actually teaches this in other passages like in in Revelation, let's see, I think chapter 13, verse 8. It's not going to be on the screen, but it indicates that God had actually set this plan in motion before the world was ever created. Nothing about our sin that day caught God off guard. It may have become trite and cliche, but I've heard others say, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He knows everything. He made this unusual picture, this unusual promise that started on the first day we messed up. He was promising to fix it, to take it at great cost to himself. Now, I mentioned that my hope is, as we look at these unusual promises, that it will give you an unusual peace. Why? Why does this give me an unusual peace? Because that means that nothing can happen that would ever catch God off guard. Nothing. I was wrestling with Caleb yesterday in the floor. He's six. Dude is quick, all right? I like to think I'm bigger than him. I'm stronger than him. I'm not as quick as he is. But I like to think that I could anticipate his movements, right? I'm his dad. I can't. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten smacked in the head or, you know, gut punched or something because he moves in a way that I don't expect. That throws me off, and I don't even know what to do. I have no martial arts background. I have no wrestling background. I have no clue how to handle any of that. So I think a lot of us are going through life this way. We're trying to anticipate everything. We're getting punched in the gut. 
It's coming from out of nowhere. And we assume that God must kind of be like that. And we're sitting here looking at the world and saying, God, it's an absolute mess down here. I mean, Teresa went to try to find hot cups this morning for us to have the hot cocoa, and Food Lion doesn't have any hot cups. Why? Probably because they're sitting on a shipping container outside of Los Angeles right now, just like everything else that you want for Christmas, right? God, do you see this? Do you see what's happening with China? Do you see what's happening with Russia? Do you see what's happening in Kentucky, Arkansas, and Tennessee? Do you see what's happening in D.C. or in Richmond? Or Do you see this? Absolutely. And he knows exactly what he's going to do. This unusual promise from, uh, that he's going to send this unusual king, he fulfilled it, and that should give me an unusual peace because I know then that from the very day we messed up, God was already working out his plan. So if he was able to do that the day we literally broke all of creation, then don't you think he's still able to do that today? Now, I want you to understand how incredibly ironic it is that I'm preaching this message today. My stomach was in knots yesterday because I've got a paper due Wednesday that I just don't feel good about. I actually completely redid my outline on Thursday. I had like five and a half pages written, had to restructure the whole thing. I just, I just don't feel good about it, and it's due Wednesday. This message is a different style than the, the ones that I usually preach, and I just didn't feel good about it. So I just was sitting there last night actually talking to Tim Borker, and I was telling him, man, I, just, I am queasy, and I know that it's got to all be nerves. Do you catch the irony of this, by the way? Like, do you, do you catch that? I'm getting ready to tell you that you should have peace while I'm letting myself get nervous. Of, well, but God, what if the message doesn't go good? God, what if my paper is terrible? So what? From the day we broke all of creation, God had a plan and he was working. So shouldn't my life, shouldn't your life be characterized by unimaginable peace? Guys, this does not deny the difficulty of what you're facing. My desire is not to dismiss it, not to make it light in any way, shape, or form. My goal is to give you hope and peace in the middle of it. Because if God could start his plan from the day we broke it, that means God's working right now. Now, that's just the first part of this promise. If God's still fully aware and able to control what's going on, then then let's fast forward a little bit to see what else God promised about this unusual king. Jump all the way over to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. A lot's happened in the pages, pages that we just flipped past, by the way. God set aside a unique group of people, the nation of Israel. He called them to himself and set them aside to serve him and honor him in a unique way. Here's the problem. They didn't do it. Over and over again, they turned to, doing, uh, to following other gods, to disobeying him, to ignoring what he said, and kept moving over and over again, farther and farther away from him. So if you remember, at some point, the nation of Israel was divided into two nations. There was the northern part that was Israel. The southern part was known as Judah. Eventually, the Assyrians carried off the northern part. And so now the southern kingdom, Judah, is starting to wonder, when are they coming for us? What's going to happen here? So here in Isaiah chapter 7, you have the king Ahaz and giving a prophecy that's telling him that judgment is coming, okay? That's what he's getting ready to describe. But in it, we have this unique, unusual comment. He says, before this 
judgment happens. He says this, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, will have a son, and name him Emmanuel. God's doing something unique with this promise. Because first of all, that word that's translated virgin there could also be translated young maiden, young woman. Most likely, this prophecy has what's called a dual fulfillment. This to Ahaz was speaking directly of the fact that at some point, Isaiah's wife was going to have a kid that was a testimony to the, the fact that before this child is old enough to do these things, these kings that you're worried about will be destroyed. However, when we get to the New Testament, we see that God actually had a greater fulfillment than just what he was doing in Isaiah's day. The greater fulfillment is that he actually would send this unusual king to be born in an unusual way. In an unusual way. Many of you are familiar with this. As we're going through, God's making this promise that he's going to defeat Satan, like we've seen before, but there's a problem. For us to be able to defeat Satan, we'd have to be free from sin. For us to be able to redeem what's been broken, we'd have to be able to be free from sin. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned, every person born is born with a stain of sin. Now, we don't have time to get into it in depth, but it it looks like from passages like in Romans chapter 5 and 6 and all that, that the sinful line, you actually inherit from your dad. In Adam, all died. So it's your dad's fault that you're a sinner. Congratulations. If somebody was going to be born and they weren't going to have that sin-stained heart from the moment they were born, born, well, that was a cool word. Now you know why I'm worried about my paper. If they weren't going to have that sin-stained heart from the moment they were conceived, the moment they were born, then that would mean that there couldn't be a guy involved in the process at all. It would have to be a baby that was conceived by a virgin. Now, in the day when God fulfilled this, there weren't fertility treatments and things like that. But listen, even if they'd gone through the traditional fertility treatments that we have, there's still male DNA involved. Sin would still be passed on. You see, it had to be a virgin that conceived. Well, that's impossible. Yes, it is. Absolutely, without a doubt, it is 100% impossible. And yet, this is the unusual way that God was going to bring his king into the world. He fulfilled this promise through the life of a young woman named Mary. She was engaged, but she was still a virgin. The angel came to her and told her that she would have a son, like Aaron was singing about at the beginning of the service today. Here's how she responded in Luke chapter 1. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless for nothing will be impossible with God. God was fulfilling this promise that he gave through Isaiah in a greater way than Isaiah and Ahaz and any of those guys could have ever imagined as he allowed a virgin to conceive and carry the very Son of God. Isn't that incredible? God 
God worked in such an amazing way to bring his son through, the, through a virgin. Why is that so important? Well, like we said, the stain of sin. But now why does that give me peace today? Well, God never did it before. God never did it again. But God did it when he needed to. You see, God's the one who created the universe. He's the one who sustains it. He's the one who holds it all together. As he does, he usually works through natural laws, through natural methods, through natural means. But if God needs to, if it's most glorifying to him, if it's most honoring to him, God can supersede even the natural laws and natural order to accomplish what he wants. You see, when God made that promise back in Genesis chapter 3, he had the power to fulfill it because he was able to suspend the laws of nature and allow a virgin to conceive and bear a son. By the way, think about it. what else makes this extraordinary. Which parent determines the gender of a child? The husband, the father, right? And yet without a father, she has a son. Because God overpowered, God overshadowed. God did what needed to be done for the redemption of the world. So how does that give me unusual peace here at Christmas? Because that means that God can do anything. If God can bring his son, this unusual king we celebrate, if he can bring him in such an unusual way and and override even the laws of nature to accomplish his purposes, then what can God not do? Now, now Sean, does that mean that God's going to do this or not? I, I don't know. What I do know is that if that's what needs to happen, God can do it. This question of God's power. If God needs to heal you physically and and, and that's what most glorifies him, then by his strength he can. However, he may also choose to use medicine. However, he may also choose to let this be the, the very disease, disorder, illness, whatever, that allows you to walk straight into his kingdom and glory. If somebody that you're praying for is not healed, It's not because God was not able. It's because God's plan was different. You understand that? If the thing that you've been praying for and looking for is not working out the way that you wanted it to, it's not because God's not able to do it. It's not too hard. It's not too complex. He can make a virgin conceive. There's nothing too difficult for him. Nothing will be impossible Well, Sean, our country's a mess. Yeah, it is, but you know what? God's still God. Yeah, but Sean, have you seen my marriage? Do you know about my relationship with my kids? Do you know how bad my finals were? Right? Some of you are sitting here, you may not get into the degree program you wanted to get into. You may not get into the college you wanted to go to. God's still God. He can work and he can move. He can do. Nothing will be impossible. So this unusual promise gives us an unusual peace because he fulfilled an unusual picture to bring an unusual king. He did so in an unusual way by allowing a virgin to conceive, which teaches us that we can have peace no matter what's going on because he's able to do whatever he needs to do. And then one third last thing that I want you to see. 
And that is that God brought this unusual king in an unusual place. Okay? An unusual place. Flip over to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. If you haven't, it's okay. It's going to be on the screen here in just a second. In in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, as you're thinking about it for a second, if you were going to have the king of the world born, where would you cause him to be born? D.C., London, New York City, somewhere influential, maybe Beijing, you know, somewhere where he's got the ability to, to rub shoulders with the elite, to get the best education, to have a chance to get into these circles of powers so that everybody could know who he was. Would you have him born in Christiansburg? Now, I am proudly Crittenberg born and raised, okay? I have spent all but about eight or nine years of my life in this lovely town. It's a great place to raise kids. It was a great place for me to grow up. I like Christiansburg a lot. Have you ever tried to describe where Christiansburg is to anybody? Here's how you go. You usually say, uh, it's, it's just south of Roanoke on 81. No, it, it's right next to Virginia Tech. Oh, yeah, I remember Michael Vick. Yeah, okay, yeah. Now, they still have no idea where it is. They just know it's close to Virginia Tech because nobody knows where Virginia Tech is. They just know it is, right? Now, here's what's interesting. This seems a little bit odd, but if we, if we look at the statistics that they've given us, do you remember after Jesus was born, about two years later, the wise men show up. They show up to Herod's place. Herod orders all of the babies, the male babies, two years old and younger, to be put to death. Okay, you, you remember that? They're in Bethlehem is where they have them put to death. This is the promise that God makes. He's going to send them in this little town called Bethlehem. 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 Now, for us, we're, we're used to the Christmas carols. It sounds important. It's five miles outside of Jerusalem. To give you an idea of how small this place is, scholars tell us that when Herod had all the male babies killed, it was probably about 20 babies. Now, that's a travesty. It doesn't take away from it. But for perspective... There's 15 to 20 babies born at Carilion every week. Okay? You think Christiansburg's the backside of nowhere? You think this is an unknown region? Well, look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here's God's plan. Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come for you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity from ancient times. God chooses this small, backwoods, tiny little podunk town to be the place where the king of the world would be born. That's weird, isn't it? Why would you ever do that? Why wouldn't you in that time have him be born in Rome or in Athens? Why wouldn't you put him in one of the great cities or even just five miles up into Jerusalem? Not that far. No, why would God do this? Why would God take Bethlehem of all places? Because he wanted to show that God can work in unusual places. You know, Christiansburg is a relatively small town. It's grown a lot since I was a kid. 
this is a pretty small region. You look around and you see some of the the churches that are impacting the, the world for the kingdom, and they're usually in a big metro area, you know. The pastors that speak at the conferences or write the books, you know, they're, they're pastoring in some large, uh, like, you know, J.D. Greer there in the, the Research Triangle there in Durham or, or Rick Warren out in Orange County, California, you know. A lot of these guys, they're in big metro areas. So, so sometimes we might sit there and say, well, God, could you really work here? Could you really do something in my life? I'm just in Christiansburg. I'm in Floyd. Could you work here? You know, if God can send the king of the universe to a, a tiny little town like Bethlehem, that means that God knows what's going on in every single little community in the world. Gordon and I have spent time in villages in the backside of nowhere, Zimbabwe. As we've walked around and we've shared the gospel and we've seen people come to know Christ, and we've seen God work. How does this give us an unusual peace? Well, because that means God can work here. God knows what's going on. He's aware. He can work. He sent his unusual king in an unusual place, so let that give us unusual peace. God, you can work here. You can work in me. You can work in my family. You can work in this church. You can work in this community. Because see, this Christmas, we're pushing back from the familiar. And we're celebrating an unusual king. One who God promised would come and crush the head of the serpent. Very unusual picture. One who would be born of a virgin, coming in an incredibly unusual way. And coming to a very unusual place there in Bethlehem. So I want you to go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes with me here for just a moment. My question for you is this. If I had been a fly on the wall in your house this week, would I be able to say that your life has been characterized by an unusual peace? If I ever heard the conversations in your dorm room or around the the water cooler at work or wherever you may be, Would the way that you responded to what took place this week be characterized by an unusual peace? If not, then there's kind of one or two main reasons. The first is that you may not be following the unusual king that we've talked about this morning. You may be doing what Adam and Eve did, and you're trying to live life on your terms, doing what you want. And today, what you need to realize is that that king that was sent was sent for you. So today, you need to surrender to him and say, God, I I want you to be the king in charge of my life. I want to go where you tell me to go. I want to do what you tell me to do. I want to stop doing the things that you say are wrong. And I want to commit to following you. You can make that decision right now where you're seated.
Just talk to him like I'm talking to you right now. Maybe here, though, that for you, you've been a Christian, you've been a believer for some time, and you just forget. You forget why you have that nativity scene in the living room. You forget about why we give gifts. You forget about why the lights, because we're celebrating the light of the world who came in. And, and you may know that, but are you resting in him, allowing him to give you peace today? Take just a moment there where you're seated and do business with God. Where do you need to see him grow your peace? Say, so God, I trust you with this. I trust you to work. I trust that you're going to do what only you can. If you're here this morning and you're ready to plant your life here as a member at Christiansburg Baptist and you've been through our Discover class, I would invite you. In just a second, I'm going to pray, and I'd invite you to come down here and just sit on one of these front pews. If you're here today and you need to know who Jesus is and you want to come talk with me about that or just want me to pray with you about something, I'd be happy to do that as well. So after I pray, you respond as God leads. Father, we are so grateful for this day, and we thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you that you sent an unusual king to save the world, that he fulfilled the unusual picture, that he came in the unusual way to an unusual place. And we thank you for how you've worked. We ask that you would give us an unusual peace in these days as we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.